welcome to the House of Lords podcast. This month we're talking about devolution and the union with Baroness Taylor of Bolton and Lord Dunlop. And we're also discussing issues around protecting young people online with Baroness Kidron. busy month so far in January as you, you might hear the effects of that on my voice so I apologize for what I sound like in this episode. Uh, lots of bills are progressing through the Lords at the moment with late and early sittings to get everything done by the end of the session. And the week we are recording we've seen the resignation at the dispatch box of Government Minister Lord Agnew which took I think everyone in the chamber by surprise in, including the government front bench who had to take a copy of his resignation. As is often the case with these things, we look for precedents, but we don't have to look that far back. Lord Bates in 2018 resigned at the dispatch box on that occasion for uh, being late to the dispatch box to answer questions for which he was very apologetic and offered his resignation. Uh, In that instance, Lord Bates's resignation wasn't accepted by the then Prime Minister Theresa May. Whereas Lord Agnew has actually resigned his position um, from government. Lots of changes being made to draft laws as well, including a string of changes made to the Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill. That included some changes that members had convinced the government to make, things like extending pardons for abolished same-sex crimes and also football banning orders. It also included a number of changes we'll be discussing with Baroness Taylor and Lord Dunlop, who both sit on the Lord's Constitution Committee. We'll also be talking to them about their latest report on the future of the union between England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Plus, we hear from Baroness Taylor about what it's like seeing yourself portrayed on stage. Uh, But first up, we're talking to Baroness Kidron about her work in the Lords to Protect Young People online. Yeah, Baroness Kidron uh, led the way on a groundbreaking change to data protection law a few years ago. Plus, has recently served on the Joint Committee on the Online Safety Bill. That's the draft law that the government aims to tackle harmful content online and regulate the big social media companies. In a very cultural episode of the podcast, Baroness Kidron is also an award-winning film and television director. So naturally, we asked her about the legacy of the renowned film about three drag queens that she made. Uh, here's what she had to say on that and more. Hello, I'm Biban. I'm a crossbench member of the House of Lords and uh, I've been in the House of Lords since July 2012, almost a decade. Biban, welcome to the podcast. You have an extensive career as a director and producer of films and television. Uh, that includes directing the BAFTA award-winning TV serialisation of Orange is Not the Only Fruit, uh, the second in the Bridget Jones films, and also the renowned Tu Wong Fu, thanks for everything Julie Newmar. Um, you're also the architect of a change to the Data Protection Act that created groundbreaking protection for children online. Could you tell us what led you from film and TV to work protecting young people? Absolutely. Um, I had about 30 years being a a, a film director and I sort of had a very bizarre career that took me to Hollywood and and I did independent films, I did documentaries. And um, I just always found that after I'd done a feature film, I wanted to do something about the real world. And uh, in 2011, 2012, 2013, around that time, uh, when a, a smartphone became the price point that an adult would give it to a child, I noticed 
all the children around me just went very silent. They had their eyes on the phone instead of on the room and on each other. And I started, even before I thought about it, I started, just picked up my camera and started making what then became a film, a documentary film called In Real Life. And it was really an exploration of what it meant uh, you know, for teenagers to grow up in the uh, digital world. And as I made that film, I began to understand for myself that there was a very silent but huge injustice that was being perpetrated on an entire generation of children, which was that the, we were sending them off into the digital world. We were saying, grow up here, but we were not recognizing that they were children. So if you treat a kid like an adult, then actually what you do is erode the privileges and protections of childhood. And that's where it all started. And the Age Appropriate Design Code was uh, created by your amendment to the Data Protection Act uh, in 2018. What was the aim of your change to that bill? What I, the reason I brought in the Age Appropriate Design Code was because I saw that in the attention economy, that in order to cremate, create as much value as possible from data, spreading it, collecting it, keeping people on, you created features of the system that, that were unsafe or exposing for children. So if you're keeping them on as long as possible, you end up making them out as many friends as possible. Or if you're spreading it as far as possible, you know, you make sure that they're as public and exposed as possible. And so I saw an absolute relationship between data protection and child safety. And that was why the code is constructed as it is and why data protection was the first approach to child safety. It's safety by design. And um, so how did the age appropriate design code sort of come about in terms of what, what's the process for, you know, putting an amendment down on a bill? What, what sort of work has to go on in the background for that to happen? I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a few different journeys that an amendment can go on. In this case, it was always uh, an amendment with cross party support. So the people who put their name behind mine came from all parties. And it was addressing a problem that was absent in the bill. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that the government, you know, embraced it. But over a period of time, it was clear that it had the support of both houses. And over a period of time, it became understood what it was for. And I think because it changed how it was a change of approach. There was no history. It wasn't like the House arguing about whether we need, you know, PHSE or SRE, you know, which is sort of a well-worn argument. It it was something new. So it took everybody a little time to to get their heads around it. Once they did, it 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 was finally um, understood, much desired, and accepted by government. And to do them credit, the, the minister said from the dispatch box that I could have a role in articulating what I thought should be in it. And that was, uh, and he, he mentioned all the things that I wanted to see. It then went to the ICO. They consulted everyone who you'd expect. Uh, they wrote a draft that was then uh, criticized by all and sundry. They wrote another draft. And eventually, when that went uh, in front of both houses and to the Secretary of State, it was 
published formally and it went into law with a transition period for compliance. And that was when things really hotted up because as soon as we were in a 12 month period to trans to transition into law, um, the the resources of the tech companies went into complying. So suddenly we were on top of the inbox. People understood that they had to do this, developer time, creative time. And one of my favorite things is that I have been contacted by most of the biggest companies in the world who now all have had to bring in child rights expertise and do child rights impact assessments through their services. So, you know, we're talking about a new culture from where children didn't exist and we pretend they're not there, yeah, to one in which you have to think about this as you develop your product. And that is the beginning of a very positive journey. And I would actually also like to do a shout out for the ICO through this because uh, that's the Information Commissioner's Office, who's the regulator. They understood that this was groundbreaking. They understood that uh, they needed to work with people to explain what it might mean. And they did a number of workshops. They've got a whole piece of their website that is dedicated to information for SMEs and so on. And perhaps the last thing I should say is, you know, since then, uh, the Irish Data Commissioner has published her Irish Fundamentals, which is uh, more or less the age-appropriate design code. And uh, uh, watch this space. I'm expecting another couple in the next couple of weeks. We should actually perhaps just explain for for anyone who doesn't perhaps know what the design code is. Um, could you just tell us, you know, in a nutshell, what it's designed to do? What it does is it says that if, if uh, the user is a child, that you must afford them a higher degree of privacy and therefore safety and what that means is things like you know not taking data that you don't need or that they would not expect you to take not spreading data when it's not in a child's best interest and I think the key things that the code did which have really transformed sort of approaches around the world was first of all it said actually children have existing rights they apply online, therefore anybody under the age of 18 is a child. You must stop pretending that 13-year-olds are adults. Um, uh, the second thing it did was it gave the protection wherever the child was likely to be. So instead of actually endlessly trying to make, you know, CBeebies or Disney or, or, or Sesame Street safer, that actually it, the protections go with the children into the spaces that we know they are, whether that's YouTube or Meta or Instagram or wherever they are. And before the code, you said uh, the tech sector has, against all rationale, been left with all the control but no responsibility. Um, it came into effect last year. Are social media companies now playing ball, in your opinion? That's a difficult question because, on the one hand, everybody's absolutely, you know, knocked over by how much they've done and what's been done in the name of the code. And if I give examples like YouTube stopped autoplay for under 18s, now that doesn't seem very important until you know that 70% of what you watch is offered to you by YouTube through autoplay. Yeah. Um, Google. Uh, put safe search as a default for all under 18s. Instagram and TikTok stopped direct messaging of adults, stranger adults to children. Um, all sorts of things that make a very material difference to the experience of children online. So, so 
absolutely stunning, uh, the changes that have been made. The second half of my answer has to be uh, not everyone, not good enough. There's a lot of things that they are bulking at that go to the heart of their business model. For example, you know, uh, recommending popular material irrespective of whether it's damaging or not. And some of the things that we still want to see will, of course, fall outside of a data protection uh, regime. So there's also uh, a lot of uh, requirements that we're going to have in the online safety bill and beyond. And I think that what I'd like to say to people is, you know, that, that the age appropriate design code is hugely successful for two reasons. One is the very particular things that it has achieved, but more importantly still is it shows you can regulate the internet. Yeah, because a lot of people are still at that kind of zero that they think we can't. Secondly, I'd like to say that if you think about the Industrial Revolution, you know, there were 17 factory acts. Now, that's health and safety within factories. That's not also the invention of uh, sewers and street lighting and all the regulation that went with that or the invention of the weekend even. You know, that there were dozens and dozens of regulatory interventions to to address uh, the building of cities that was the result of industrialization and indeed industrialization itself. So what I'd like people to see in the age appropriate design code is an approach, a successful approach, a proportionate approach, a product safety approach, and a very fair approach that we now must do the next 17 interventions rather than say did it solve children's relationship to the digital world because the answer is painfully no. Uh, Bivan, uh, last year you served uh, on the joint committee on the draft online safety bill, a, a joint committee being both peers and MPs, um, and the committee made recommendations to improve the bill back in December last year. Um, we're expecting government response hopefully in the next few weeks. Um, what are the red line issues there for you? What, do you? what are you expecting them to say? I think it's uh, the key thing, and I think I actually speak uh, on behalf of all committee members when I say this, is the key thing we try to make clear is that our, our suggestions, our recommendations were a coherent whole, that they are interdependent. It's not a pick and mix. This is not an opportunity for Secretary of State to take some sort of nice headline grabbing recommendations and said, we we listened hard. What we looked at was the structure of the bill. And the structure of the bill uh, had sort of strayed into being a content bill that we were all concerned uh, was a unenforceable b complex and c actually you know strayed into this area of who knows what truth and we drove our recommendations into making it much more like the age appropriate design code in being a systems and processes what you must think of on behalf of your users uh, before you roll out your product and and i do make this point that the that the joint committee could not have had a broader ideological spread. It was both houses, all parties and none like myself. And we were unanimous across our recommendations. So I am hoping, and I believe we are hoping, that the government sees that we've done a lot of the work of taking a draft bill, which was really approaching one of the most 
difficult, um, you know, issues of our time and actually taking it up a level into being a pragmatic and implementable bill and that they should see it as that. During, during the committee hearings, what sort of stakeholder submissions and contributions did you have? Did, did you speak to the uh, social media companies themselves? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we spoke to a very broad range of stakeholders. So there was sort of early on, we spoke to a lot of people who who have been victims of the digital world, whether it's uh, because of their race, because they were epileptic, because their children, you know, we, we heard from bereaved parents um, and so on. But we also very importantly heard from people who are worried about, you know, freedom of speech and and uh, journalistic integrity and, and any of the unintended consequences of the bill and perhaps pointed to some of the current weaknesses of the bill. Um, and then, of course, we we heard from uh, ministers, from the civil service, from, from regulators and the tech companies. And um, I, I have to say that tech company evidence was, I think, I should say, a bit of a car crash in total because they actually hadn't done enough homework, displayed a level of sort of, I don't know whether it's ignorance or arrogance about the impact of their services. And I think that in particular, the committee was very struck by the lack of governance. And that was, you know, they didn't report upwards. These issues about safety didn't have a good, clear journey to the board. And uh, and I think that that was very much underlined by Frances Haugen's testimony, because, of course, she came uh, to see the committee and, you know, hiding research, being disingenuous about what you do publish um, and uh, people like her being blocked when they try and improve things internally. And I, and I think that, that that has changed the public mood. I think the idea that they know about some of these problems and they're not dealing with them. I think that has put a lot of people, you know, on side of the bill who perhaps were a little bit worried in the first place. And we're speaking only just a few days after your debate on the role of social media in the deaths of young people. Uh, in that debate, you spoke about the ordeals that parents have to go through to access the data of their children when they've taken their own life. Um, is this another area where social media companies have all the power but none of the responsibility? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's an absolute travesty to imagine, as I set out in that debate, um, you know, a recently bereaved parent having to trawl through their child, uh, the, the online world, to try and find evidence about the people who murdered him. Or indeed, another parent who in the days after their child died, having to go to the genius bar at Apple and be refused a password. And and I have had uh, quite a lot to do with bereaved parents. They've sought me out as they have tried to campaign to get access for their data. And I do not accept the defense of the tech companies, which is, well, our real concern is that other users may be distressed by what's found out or may it may 
you know, cause uh, another tragedy. Uh, that does not explain why they don't give their data to the coroner. That does not explain why the police are unable to get that data. It does not explain why it's taken four years for the one UK coroner to pursue this issue four years uh, before the inquest of Molly Russell to come, you know, to fruition. You know, and and I think that 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 uh, block in the system has to come to an end. Now, I was grateful to Richard Allen, formerly of Facebook, uh, for supporting my call and for acknowledging that it is technically possible and legally should be allowed. But I actually would like colleagues to really concentrate on, on this question that quite apart from the child in question, if we don't look under the hood, see what they are seeing, that means the same material, the same people, the same videos, yeah, are being algorithmically spread to other young people, looped out forever and ever and ever, and no one actually uh, held responsible or even trying to prevent that spread. So I think the bit that I am really concerned about is that it gives the tech companies cover to spread this stuff to other young children, even while you have the heartbreak of parents who can't find closure. And of course, we're talking here about very, very big companies, aren't we? Worldwide companies. Um, something like 45% of the global population uses at least one of the Facebook products. Are social media companies too big? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely some of them. I think we must not fall into the trap of thinking that uh, all the harm is, is, is done by the mega companies, but definitely any company in any sector that is a monopoly, you know, and more powerful than uh, nation states has got to be a problem for democracy if you believe in democracy, period. Yeah, I mean, that's just a fact. But I think the other thing is, that they are, they are also the system, there's a supply chain issue. If you can go seamlessly from a very large company and find yourself down a hole that may be a tiny company, you know, run by, you know, three people, but is putting, you know, children's faces on deep fake porn, yeah? Then why are they out of scope? So that's that is a question that government just has not got its head around. And you know, the the funny thing is that you know there is this whole argument about proportionality. You know, I would agree with it, but actually, it, it is also the case that the less you're doing wrong, uh, the less you have to change to meet regulatory uh, systems. And that actually, if you sort of extrapolate out and say, oh, okay, we're going to make sure that food from Tesco and Sainsbury's and Iceland is safe, but actually you can do any kind of poison from the corner shop, whatever. That would, it's so preposterous, you know, or if you're Ford, you must have a break, but if you're, you know, some new e-bike thing, you don't need one. These things are irrational. And I think that the, the, the you know, colleagues should just really think hard about the fact that, you know, that the tech sector is now responsible for the largest amount of money in lobbying around the world. 
and these this idea of their exceptionality uh, rather than seeing this as basic product safety that any other business any other sector has to deal with uh, is is something that they've put a great deal of money into and uh, you know i mean they are now bigger than than big pharma big food nra you know their lobbying money is immense and so we just got to hold on to this idea these are consumer facing products they have to be safe for consumers and when it comes to kids we accept we expect a higher level of safety because children do not have the life experience, the cognitive development or the emotional understanding to act in their own safety in the same way as adults. So for all of those reasons, we all deserve better. And children in particular, we have an absolute fundamental sort of moral duty to make sure these guys design their systems to be safe. Because actually, if there are 1 billion kids online in the world, all of that value, 25% of global GDP now comes from the tech sector, 1 billion kids, that's a lot, a lot of money they're making on the back of children. And we decided 150 years ago in this country to take kids out of the chimneys, put them in school, give them a childhood. This is what we're doing here now. They should not be working for the man in Silicon Valley. And to finish up, can we just circle back to um, to Wong Fu for a moment? Um, drag has experienced a bit of a, a, bit of a resurgence uh, in mainstream culture in the last few years, uh, thanks uh, to things in part to things like RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, and RuPaul appeared, of course, in Tu Wong Fu. I surprised that it took such a, such a long time for drag culture to have such wide interest again. If I could put it the other way and say I'm delighted to see Ru have her own show, very similar, you know, to the narrative of uh, Tu Wong Fu. And, and I am still every now and again when I'm in New York on business or, or, or talking, uh, you know, involved with the UN or whatever else I'm doing, um, I find myself in a street and, uh, and, and there's a bunch of uh, drag queens that I work with at that time and there's a sort of a big hug and kiss and do you know who it is? And it's one of the joys of my life. It's one of my, the joys of my life to have been embraced by that community to have participated and 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 been an early adopter and understander, you know, of 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 what this meant, and you know, sort of all power to RuPaul, say I. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Beban, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been really interesting hearing all your thoughts and and all your different areas of work. And um, I'm off to watch Drag Race. <laughs> Absolute pleasure. <laughs> And next up, here's Baroness Taylor of Bolton and Lord Dunlop. I'm Anne Taylor, Baroness Taylor of Bolton. I've been chairing the Constitution Committee for the past few years. I'm a Labour member of the House of Lords and was previously a member of Parliament. And I'm Andrew Dunlop. I have been a Conservative member of the Constitution Committee for the last four years. And before that, I was a, uh, an advisor to um, two prime ministers and a former minister for Scotland and Northern Ireland. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you both for joining us. Um, the Lord's Constitution Committee, of which you're both members, has called for a reset of the relationships between uh, the governments and lawmaking bodies in the UK. Why are you calling for this now? Well, I think it's clear that 
that um, there have been some tensions between different parts of the UK in recent years. And this year, 2022, is the centenary of the UK, the Union as we know it. And so we decided to look at what the problems were, what the issues were, and what might be the way forward. We've taken evidence from a wide range of people in, in Scotland, in Wales, in Northern Ireland, as well as in the regions of England. And we've come up with some proposals which we think should result in a resetting of the relationship between central government and, its and the component parts. The UK is one of, if not the most centralised countries in the whole of Europe and much more centralised than those countries we identify with. So it really is time that we release the trap that central government has on lawmaking and on indeed on spending and delivering services. Unless we get a different balance, we don't think that we can face the challenges for the future in terms of COVID, in, in terms of dealing with Brexit, in terms of climate change, deindustrialization. There are a lot of problems there, and we believe that all the answers are not in Whitehall and Westminster. Yes, I mean, I, I would very much agree with Anne. I think we've been through some very tumultuous years um, with Brexit and, and COVID. And I th think, uh, particularly during COVID, we've seen how it's important for governments to work together to produce effective outcomes. And I think people want to see their governments uh, working together. And boy, do we have some big challenges and opportunities uh, ahead of us. You know, how do we have a public health recovery? How do we have an economic recovery? How do we deal with climate change? And on top of that, you know, the world is changing very fast with an information and technology revolution. So really, I think our report is um, let's not waste time on constitutional bickering. How can we improve uh, the relationships between the governments of this country uh, and start delivering uh, for the people who need uh, help and support? And you mentioned there, of course, Brexit and, and the pandemic. Um, what would you say is the biggest threat at the moment to the union? Well, I think it's attitudinal. Um, it's got to be that people have got to want things to succeed. So that's why we have put an emphasis on respect and cooperation and partnership. The different parts of the United Kingdom have got to respect the powers that the other parts have. And then they have got to work together uh, in order to deliver the kind of services that are needed. I think you can divide the problems into three areas. One is structural. Have we got the right organisation uh, to deliver services? Secondly, uh, operational within the structures we've got, are they working well? And thirdly, the political. Now, the political, we're going to have political differences between uh, governments in different parts of the country. But if you have that basic respect for the different roles that different institutions have, then you've got a better starting point than what we have at the moment, uh, which is the over-centralisation. What we found when we were taking evidence that people said, well, when in the early days of devolution, it was a case of, oh, there you are, get on with it, 
devolve and forget. And more recently, we've had the Prime Minister and others having a more muscular uh, approach, saying, we know what the union is about, and you'll do it this way. You know, we're not getting out anywhere with either of those attitudes. And it is basically the devolved institutions respecting what Whitehall and Westminster can do, and vice versa. Uh, and I think there's also another dimension here in terms of English regional and local government. But the, the biggest problem in terms of the union is the need for respect from different institutions. Yes, and if I could just sort of add to that, I mean, I, I think I would encapsulate the biggest threat to the union as, as being people feeling they're not sharing equally in the union's benefits and that they feel powerless to make their uh, voices heard. You know, decisions are taken kind of remotely from you know where where they live or you know you know how they feel about their daily life, and I think um, you know a lot of the impetus behind Scottish independence and Brexit flows from those two things. If you look at the places in Scotland that voted yes in 2014, places like Dundee and Glasgow. Uh, I don't think you know what people were feeling in those cities is very different from what people are um, feeling in in the north of England. So I think tackling these issues can be and should be a great unifying project. Uh, we're waiting as we speak for the government's leveling up white paper, and I think that's going to be very important. And it needs to be ambitious because. As Anne has said, you know, over many, many years, one of the problems that's beset the country is, you know, the regional economic uh, inequality. And that that happens all over the country. And so, you know, we need an ambitious agenda going forward that is both long term and has cross party support. But those are the sorts of issues that I see as being the biggest threat to the union going forward. And you mentioned there um, Scottish independence. There's obviously been a lot of talk about a new referendum um, in the last year. Is a reset in the relationships enough, do you think, to keep the union together? I, I, I think on its own, uh, it's, it's uh, what do they say, it's, uh, it's a necessary but not a, a sufficient uh, condition. Uh, and I, I definitely think a reset um, will help. You know, devolution is the union alternative to independence and it in, in my view provides the best of both worlds you know significant autonomy over domestic policy for each of the nations but also that ability to come together to share risks and resources to deal with uh, common common problems but i've always said that i think devolution is an unfinished uh, project and i think what our report is about is how do you, how do you fill the gap? And uh, the gap is shared governance. How do you develop the mechanisms for shared governance? And I think, as Anna said, you know, attitudes matter as much, if not more, than than structures. And uh, I think we're seeing some encouraging signs. Uh, and I think it's not just about managing or accentuating differences. It's about actually how do you learn from each other. And how do you pursue uh, joint initiatives? So in in 2014, you know the, the the no campaign was called Project Fear. But what we need now is Project Hope. Uh, and really, the theme of our report is how do you build a union of cooperation and respect? 
And I think you know that goes with the grain of public opinion. Uh, all the evidence suggests that the public want to see governments across the United Kingdom working together. And if any of those governments show themselves unwilling to work together, then I think there's a, a political cost to be paid for that. I just add, I, in terms of what Andrew was just saying, you, he reminds me that um, when we look at COVID and what's happened in terms of cooperation on COVID, you see the best and you see the worst. When COVID first struck, the first ministers of Scotland and Wales were included in the COBRA meetings, the emergency meetings that government had, and that lasted for a few months, and that was very positive, and they felt involved. And two things that people may have heard about around devolution, but perhaps um, aren't sure exactly what it means, are the uh, Sewell Convention and the Barnet Formula. Um, could you just explain a, a little bit about what those mean and, and your recommendations? I think people have struggled to understand the Barnet Formula <laughs> from the day it was actually uh, invented by Lord Barnet in the in the 70s. And I'll, I'll leave Andrew to, to, <laughs> to talk about I think that's what's called a hospital pass. <laughs> it's a hospital pass, all right. In terms of the Sewell Convention, when the legislation went through on devolution, it was decided that in those areas where the devolved institutions were uh, given powers, Westminster would not actually legislate in those areas unless there was consent from the Scottish Parliament or the Welsh Assembly, as it was now Welsh Parliament. And it's a convention which means it's a rule that should be followed. Uh, and for a long time, it more or less was followed with the odd hiccup. Brexit has actually caused some significant problems because the UK government did everything at the last minute. There's a lot of brinkmanship. There was a lot of emergency legislation. And it was very difficult to, for the Scottish uh, institutions and the Welsh to actually uh, find time and find a level of engagement with the UK government that allowed them to give consent. The Welsh did in the end, but the, the Scots didn't. And it causes resentment if you feel that you've been given powers, but actually the UK government is overriding those powers. And it's not a simple area because many of these areas are a bit messy in terms of how much the powers infringe uh, on devolved responsibilities. Uh, but it does cause resentment. And we think that there are ways of improving this situation. And maybe Parliament itself, particularly in the House of Lords, uh, could change its procedures so that we link in more with parliamentarians in Scotland and in Wales, so that when legislation is going through and they've got concerns, they have a direct route into Westminster and our institutions could flag up concerns and take them on board when we're passing legislation. I think that that would help to uh, improve confidence that the concerns that people in Scotland or in, in Wales might have were actually properly considered by the Westminster Parliament, not just negotiated or ignored by the Whitehall government. Barnet formula, Andrew. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> See what you well, a bit of history here. I mean, uh, Barnet, uh, the Barnet formula was named after Joel Barnet, who was the Labour chief secretary, I think in 1979. So that tells you that the Barnet formula has been going for over 40 years. And in simple terms, it, it's the formula which is used to determine 
how the Treasury allocates funding to the devolved uh, government. And without getting into the complexity of it, and it is quite complex, uh, basically uh, it uh, relates to a population share of equivalent changes to English spending. That's the simplest I can, can make it. Uh, there are lots of other bits to it, but that is the basic uh, principle. And I think our point in, in, in the report that as uh, there have been changes to how devolved governments are funded and with great uh, devolution of um, tax raising powers to those governments, um, they have become less reliant on the Treasury block grant. And in our report, we're also calling for more devolution in England, including fiscal devolution. And really our main point is that given all of those changes, we think it is right that the Barnett formula should be reviewed to see that it is still uh, delivering in the way it did in 1979. And I think the, the thing that everybody, the principle that everybody agrees on is that funding should be related to need. And whatever the tax raising powers that different parts of the country have, it's the responsibility of the UK government, the central government, to be responsible for redistribution, to make sure that no matter where you live, there is a similar level of public service, irrespective of you know, your ability to raise tax and, and the tax base of the area in which you live. So that's really what we're calling for. Things have changed. Let's look at it again and make sure that everybody is getting the funding that they need to deliver the services that people need and want. The, the report talks about strengthening interparliamentary relations uh, between the UK Parliament, Scottish Welsh Parliaments and the Northern Ireland Assembly. Uh, in the report, you recommend an enhanced role for the Lords in both scrutinising bills that engage the Sword Convention, which uh, Anne kindly explained, and in facilitating par interparliamentary relations. Um, the question, I guess, is why do you think the Lords is particularly well placed to fulfil those roles? Uh, partly because we don't have constituents who take up a very large proportion of the time of individual members of parliament. Uh, and so we have perhaps a different perspective uh, on, on some issues. Um, the Lords does tend to concentrate on the detail in a way that the Commons doesn't always have, find time for, and that's another reason. The Constitution Committee went to uh, Wales, went to Scotland, talked to the relevant committees there, and we were finding that many of the issues that they were talking about were very similar to the ones that concern us. You know, what is the relationship between your government and your parliament? Um, how much uh, say do you have and is it at the right time? And we do have procedures, uh, for example, on the legislative consent motion, where it's flagged up with parliamentary papers whether legislative consent has actually been achieved. Now, that's just one little note that just skims the surface of what the issues are. What we think should happen is that if there is a problem on legislative consent, for example, the relevant committee in Wales or wherever 
can get in touch with the relevant committee in the House of Lords, explain the issues that are causing concern, and then that committee in the Lords can decide whether members as individuals want to bring those problems to the attention of the House as a whole. And I think that it would give more reassurance on the part of uh, other um, legislatures that their concerns were being heard at Westminster where there is a joint problem and a joint potential for a solution. So I think there's a willingness there. And, you know, lots of parliaments have connections. It's strange. We have the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association, so um, members of parliament, members of the House of Lords, pre-COVID, would go and visit parliaments in other parts of the world and compare problems. We've got the Interparliamentary Association, which is for not just Commonwealth countries. And yet we were not having the same internally within the UK. And I think it would strengthen our democracy if we all felt that we were more connected and problems in one area are very often problems elsewhere. I mean, one of the things that devolution has shown is that you can experiment. Uh, the Welsh um, introduced charges for plastic bags before everybody else. And that was rolled out there. And everybody else said, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And it works. Uh, similarly, the Scots have done odd things to experiment with things that could be picked up uh, by the UK government. So the more interaction we have, the more we can cooperate, the more we can learn from each other. And I think that that would um, strengthen our democracy overall. But in terms of your basic question, why the Lords? Partly because we are the Lords and we can make the suggestions for our chamber that we hesitate about making for the House of Commons. But also because there is a very real problem in terms of time constraints on members of Parliament. OK, we, well, we've touched on England. You mentioned English regionalism, fiscal devolution and levelling up. Some those suggest the answer is an English Parliament. Is that something you considered in the committee's investigation? Yes, I mean, I think I think we did look at it, um, but I think there are two basic problems. Um, the first is that there is no evidence at all that the people of England want an English Parliament, which seems a pretty <laughs> big hurdle to to start with. I think the other, the second problem is the size of England. I mean, England represents 80%, over 80% uh, in population and economic terms of the United Kingdom. And I think establishing uh, an English parliament would really seriously risk destabilizing the whole uh, union. Uh, I think it would make, were there such a thing, um, the English first minister more powerful than the, the UK uh, prime minister. So I think in our report, uh, we've taken a different approach. Um, we've looked, of course, at the evidence that was provided to us about an English parliament, but we've really focused on extending English uh, devolution. And I think um, what was interesting during the course uh, of the uh, evidence we took and the review we undertook is that there is now evidence of growing support uh, for English devolution. And that, that isn't a surprise because um, people have taken part in elections for mayors uh, uh, and, and the like. Uh, and I think people can see you know, tangible action on the ground and they like the look of that. 
Uh, and, you know, we, we feel that, I think as a committee, that decisions should be taken closer to the people affected by them. Uh, and that's why we have very much focused on English uh, devolution and extending it, because I think there is a link to your economy will grow more strongly and faster if it grows more evenly, and it will grow more evenly uh, if uh, power is devolved down. And that's, that's what all the international evidence that we received as part of the inquiry told us. And we're really, you know, getting behind that idea and that proposition. I th yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, th there isn't an example of a federal system of government where one element in it is over 80% of the whole. And that, that in itself makes it not viable. In terms of English devolution and power to um, mayors, to regional bodies, to combined authorities, to local government, we have some really powerful evidence from the Local Government Association, uh, from both the Conservative uh, leader on that organisation and the Labour leader. They sat together in the same room uh, reinforcing each other's points about how they could deliver more effectively if the whole structure was changed, if we had a framework for local government uh, and capacity building within local government and more freedom for local government to implement some of the policy decisions that were essential. And it was very interesting to see the common approach that they had and the very positive examples they were giving us of how they have to waste money bidding for central government projects that then don't come off when actually, if they were uh, in part of a better system of allocation, they'd be able to get on with the job uh, and deliver on the projects. And that was, as I say, common in both of the political parties and something that I think impressed the committee very significantly. Andrew, can I um, ask you about the Dunlop review, um, which you previously conducted on behalf of the UK government, about government's union capability. Do you think that things have moved in the right direction since your review? I think that was in 2019. And are there any further changes you'd like to see government make? Yes, I mean, I think I think my review was really how, how do you make sure that, um, you know, the health of the union is really put at the heart of policymaking within the UK government? And also, how do you change, you know, the Whitehall knows best uh, mindset. And therefore, my review was all about what we've been talking about today. It's about attitudes, changing attitudes. How do you achieve that cultural change within the UK government? I mean, I think um, after my report was published, I think we went through a period, and Anne's already mentioned it, of, you know, the government going down a road of muscular unionism, sort of overriding uh, the devolved governments in their areas of responsibility. And I have to say that 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 worried me uh, and really wasn't in line uh, with what I was recommending uh, in in my review. But I think uh, as time has gone on, I think the government has changed its tag and is now adopting a more cooperative uh, and respectful uh, approach um, to the devolved governments. 
Uh, and uh, so I'm pleased about that because that does absolutely align with what I was recommending in my report. And I think, you know, the, the evidence for that is I think we detected as a committee in our inquiry that there was uh, a renewed respect for, for, for the Sewell Convention. That will take time and we'll be watching very closely to see that that is followed through. And I think the uh, joint agreement between the UK government and the devolved governments on a, a new way of managing intergovernmental relations is also a very um, positive sign. But I think the key here is follow through. And I think what we make clear in our report that the House of Lords, the Constitution Committee, and we hope uh, equivalent committees in the House of Commons will hold the government's feet to the fire. And that is the other key theme of both my report and the Constitution Committee report, and that is improving the transparency and scrutiny of this activity. Uh, and that is a big part of the recommendations I made, and it's a big part of the recommendations uh, that um, the, the Constitution Committee makes. Because uh, I think when you shine a light into all of that, that this, it's more likely that the various governments will start to behave in a more cooperative, collaborative way. And some of the behaviours we've seen in the past might be a thing of the past, and I certainly hope so. And I think that what Andrew has outlined in terms of intergovernmental relationships and, and the need for greater transparency also spills over into interparliamentary cooperation, because if you're going to have the light shining more, as Andrew says, uh, then you can have interparliamentary discussion of what's actually gone on in those intergovernmental uh, meetings. And I think that that is helpful. So that, yeah, I think Andrew's right. There are, there are chinks of light, but I think there's some way to go before the spirit of Andrew's recommendations are actually carried through. It, it would be remiss of us not to uh, ask you about the police crime and sentencing bill, which I know the committee looked at last um, September. Um, given that this week there was a record number of government defeats uh, on the bill. So, I mean, the committee, I think, reviewed the bill last September, as I say, and warned that the size and complexity of the bill made it difficult for effective parliamentary scrutiny. And obviously, as I say, the government was defeated a number of times um, on that. What Was that inevitable? Did you see that coming? I think there was a degree of inevitability about it, and we were very critical. And we've been critical on other bills uh, but on this particular bill, it wasn't just the bill as it was originally looked at last September. The extra additional, very significant problem was that whole chunks of legislation and provisions were being put in at the last minute that hadn't been looked at by the Commons at all. And therefore, you know, we were presented almost with a supplementary bill added piggybacking on, on the basic bill. And that's why there was so much disquiet about that and that's why there were so many votes um, but really that sort of brings up the other side of respect and cooperation you know we have separation of powers in this country and parliament has a role and the executive has a role uh, and you've got to have respect for both roles uh, so parliament has got to respect the fact that the government makes decisions but it has to be accountable to parliament but when it comes to legislation 
governments need to reassess, I think, uh, their approach to legislation, because too often Parliament is not given the information that it requires to fully go into the implications of the changes that the government wants to make. That was, you know, there in a mega way on Monday. But I think it's a creeping uh, um, trend that Parliament itself has got to be very careful of. And the Constitution Committee has expressed concerns about this in the past. And if it goes on, I think they will be expressing very significant concerns in the future. I mean, I think the only, the only thing I would, would add is, you know, when I was a government minister, um, I always felt that um, departments really didn't fully understand how the House of Lords uh, worked. And, you know, it's sort of legislative teams were very much geared to the to the House of Commons. But but actually, you know, the, the House of Lords can have a, a, a big impact <laughs> on the legislative uh, process. And, and I did find it strange that, you know, these new um, clauses and package of clauses was brought in at the last minute, because it seemed to me a very strange legislative strategy. The government doesn't have a, a majority in the House of Lords. And the way they've done it, the House of Lords has taken out uh, those a lot of those clauses. And as a result, for 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 sort of technical reasons, um, you know, the House of Commons can't put them back in again. So it seemed to me a very sort of self-defeating legislative strategy by by the government. And uh, as a as a supporter of the government, I found that a bit strange. That's the only other. Can I just pick up on that, Andrew? Because I think uh, from my time in government as well, I think government doesn't always understand that Parliament can actually be helpful in terms of getting the legislation mm. into the right shape. Mm. Uh, government tends to think this is our legislation, accept it and get it through. Whereas sometimes some of the issues, if you, if you have pre-leg scrutiny, a committee looking at the legislation early on, then that committee can often highlight problems that can be sorted at an early stage. Whereas if you railroad the legislation through, the problems come later down the line and you've got a whole panoply of difficulties uh, later on. So I think that we need to get government ministers understanding that some of the suggestions that are made in Parliament, in committees or indeed on the floor of the House, uh, you know, they're positive, they're constructive, they're not all just political opposition. Very often, especially in the House of Lords, you get some very thoughtful and very experienced people putting forward ideas that would actually help the government. No, and I, I think that's right. And certainly in the House of Lords, it's not, not just the amendments that get put down, debated and, you know, some of them car carried, some of them not. It's a lot of the unseen work that goes on uh, between uh, members of the House of Lords and uh, the government front bench in discussing about some of these issues. And actually, you know, the government recognising that improvements can be made and concessions are, are, are made. Uh, and, you know, these things sometimes don't even go to, to, to a division. And, and a lot of that work is, is really not, not seen, uh, but does go on, and I think illustrates the point that uh, Anne has, has been making. 
we're talking here, I guess, about the, the, the difficulties of um, scrutinising big, complex bills. And only last month in our December podcast, the chairs of the Delegated Powers and Regulatory mm. Reform Committee and the Secondary Legislation Scrutiny Committee were um, talking almost about the opposite problem, the use of skeleton bills. Um, is that something the committee's similarly concerned about? And I, I, I suppose the listeners might be interested in, you know, what's the right amount of detail for a bill? Is there such a Goldilocks bill out there? <laughs> well, I think that's what we're always grappling with. Um, but in answer to your question, yes, we do share the concerns of those two committees. Um, skeleton bills, you know, we, we used to call them Christmas tree bills. Uh, the Home Office was particularly uh, bad at this, even when we were in government. When I was uh, Chief Whip, Leader of the House, we used to have a ledge committee and we always knew that when the Home Office brought forward a bill, that was a thin end of the wedge because they would give you a bit of a bill and then as it went through, they'd add all sorts of baubles and things they'd had in their bottom drawer and wanted to legislate on for years and they'd bring them out and try them time again. And, you know, business managers have to try to contain what government ministers want to do. So those concerns are there. And that's why I think, you know, we, we've, we've got to look at this again. I think it's an, you know, there are certain trends that are developing in terms of legislation that are extremely worrying. Uh, skeleton bills, the use of what are called Henry VIII clauses that your uh, previous podcast um, would covered. Um, the fact that so many significant things are now being decided by secondary legislation without pro proper reference to Parliament. One very clear example is the creation of offences so that, you know, you can actually have ministers able to create a new offence. You know, anything of that nature should actually come to Parliament first and not be possible for ministers to do it by a strategy instrument that gets at most 90 minutes discussion at some later date. Uh, so th there are worrying trends and things that I think across the parties in the House of Lords we are concerned about. And if I can just ask, I think um, you might be our first guest that has been a character in a play. <laughs> um, James Graham's This House was set in the House of Commons um, at the time that you were the first uh, female whip. Um, what was that like? Amazing and surreal and, and um, you know, <laughs> yes, took me back. I, I actually went to um, meet the cast before they, they uh, published, uh, before the play open uh, and I sat round in a big circle. I thought I was just going to watch a scene, but they all wanted to ask me questions in order to get a whole feel of it. And I just regret that that particular couple of hours was not recorded because it brought back things that sparked <laughs> memories that I you know, just went out the window. Uh, but it was particularly peculiar because I went to see the play the first time with my daughter who was the age I was then. And so it was almost sort of sitting next to myself as a younger uh, person. The, the fact is that James Graham is just the most amazing playwright uh, of this generation. And every single one of the plays that he has done, I have just been so impressed at how he gets under people's, under the issues, under people's skin. And yet, you know, the Conservative Whip's office went to see this house and thought it was terrific. The Labour Whip's office went to see this house and they thought it was terrific. So somehow he managed to weave it all together in a way that had everybody um, 
praising it and thinking it was fantastic. And it was. Brilliant. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. It's been a really, really interesting discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Pretty painless. <laughs> And that's it for this month's episode of the House of Lords podcast. We'll be back next month with more news and views from the UK Parliament's second chamber. 